Thank you, Holy Father, for your divine redemptive plan fulfilled in your Son, Jesus Christ, made manifest through the bride of Christ, all for the glory of Christ. We do praise God from whom all blessings flow. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we praise you. Pray that you will now bless the proclamation of your word to the hearts of your people. Again, for the glory of the name above all names, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Good morning. And uh, thank you again to our worship team who leads us so faithfully week after week in preparing our hearts to receive the Word of God, and to do so now in continuing in the worship of the Lord this morning, we're going to look together um, where we've been for a number of weeks now, and that is the Sermon on the Mount, and most specifically this morning we will look at verses 33 to 37 of Matthew chapter 5. So if you've opened your Bibles there, um, we will continue to look at the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ with with regard to his kingdom and his kingdom people as the king of his people. Jesus continues in this glorious sermon. We pick up verse 33, for which he says, Again, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, For you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. May the Lord bless his word um, to our minds and hearts this morning. The title of the message is Truthful Integrity in the People of God. As you know, we live in a culture that has long lost its credibility for integrity and most certainly a sensitivity uh, to the truth. Oftentimes what drives a culture is unfortunately adopted by the very people of God. We live in an age where false witness is the norm and deceit is actually expected. A number of years ago, uh, philosopher Cicela Bach uh, wrote a book entitled Lying. A couple of quotes from that book. One, quote, it is easy to tell a lie, but hard to tell only one. Another, quote, we live in a day that we find the truth surprising rather than the lie shocking, end quote. And no doubt, beloved, as we listen to politicians, economic gurus, infomercial promises 
uh, we too, for the most part, um, expect to be lied to. How unfortunate is that? But you see, Jesus, who loved the truth and hated deceit, confirmed the ninth commandment when he said in Mark 10, verse 19, do not bear false witness. In Mark 7, he warned that deceit comes out of the heart and actually defiles a person. In John 8, he said that lying originates with the devil. He has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. And those who turn away from speaking the truth, actually, he goes on to say, join forces with Satan. Because you see, in contrast, Jesus came to to the world in order to reveal the truth about God, the truth about man, and the truth about salvation. And before he was crucified, he prayed what we know as the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, where he said this to the Father. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is what? Truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us in order that the world may believe that you sent me. Our main point this morning, beloved, is to see the power of integrity and truthfulness within the children of God. That is to understand both the place and the power of truthfulness in the Christian life and its testimony to a lost and dying world. That's our main point this morning. Now, here's Christ speaking on the hills of Galilee to a very outwardly religious, outwardly moral people. He's addressed thus far the sins of adultery. He's addressed the sins of murder and of unbiblical divorce. And these people are no doubt thinking to themselves, uh, certainly I have not committed the sin of murder or adultery. But Jesus is saying, oh, yes, you have. You just haven't thought about it correctly. You need to realize how far this command goes. You don't understand how much you need the grace that I'm here to provide you. You haven't realized how much you need the atonement that I have come to offer. You don't realize your desperate need for forgiveness that only I can offer. Because you see, within his audience, beloved, are two groups of people those who are apart from him and those who are part of him. Those who are no doubt very religious but are apart from him and those everyday sinners who are part of him, whose faith and trust are in him. He's reminding those who have not embraced him that their breaking of the commandments goes much deeper than simple outward 
sin, much deeper than they have ever contemplated, which is further evidence why we desperately need the grace that only he can provide. Now, also within this audience are those that are his uh, true disciples. Um, that's the main emphasis is being pointed to those that are true followers of Jesus Christ here on the hills of Galilee. And to them, he says, I want you to understand that when you're in me, when you're united to, to me, the spirit will work in you obedience that is pleasing to the father. Here's Jesus, the very word of God. He's declaring himself. He's declaring his kingdom with words. Words. It's been said that God invests himself in his words. He has revealed himself to us through his words. He's revealed himself to you, beloved, by way of words. That's why Jesus is the word. He is the living logos. And our response to his words is our response to him. And we, therefore, as recipients of divine grace, have the ability to impact those around us with truthfulness, with integrity, with consistency that, as you know, is a long-gone paragon virtue in the culture in which we live. Long lost. And that is precisely, beloved, what Jesus is addressing in the Sermon on the Mount in verses 33 to 37. Jesus, at this time, was contradicting the religious teaching of his day. I mean, he's cutting against what the people were actually hearing in the synagogues. Every Saturday, they went to worship. He wasn't criticizing the ethics of the Romans. He wasn't cunning against the philosophy of the Greeks. He was criticizing the theology theology of those whose responsibility it was to teach the word of God. Saying to those in attendance, notice in verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is declaring here clearly that the righteousness of Christ's people, which is not, by the way, our own achievement, it is a righteousness that must come from outside of us, is the very sign of the Holy Spirit working within us our sanctification. That's his point. We're told here that a higher righteousness is evident within Christ's people. To the people of the day, the scribes and Pharisees appeared to be as righteous as one could be, but Jesus cuts cuts them off at their knees, and he said, it's all outward. Your righteousness, my people, must exceed theirs, and it must come from outside of you. In other words, it's Christ's righteousness alone. Because you see, the very people of God are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. They are transformed. They are renewed. And we of all people are therefore characterized by sincerity and godly uprightness because his words, you see, his words are now our words, recipients of God's eternal word. That's why Romans 10 says this. The word is near you in your mouth and in your hearts. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, to be justified refers to our status before God. 
forgiven, cleansed, made new. Condemnation and accusation against you were destroyed on Calvary's cross. In addition to that glorious truth is the fact that God actually transfers the perfect righteousness of his son to the believing sinner. So not only is one's, are one's sins removed as far as the east is from the west, but they are actually made perfectly righteous by the imputed righteousness of the Son. Not only wiping away the record of your sin, but crediting that very righteousness to your account eternally. And let me remind you that his amazing, unmerited favor and grace produces something that is very radical. It's called transformation. That is that the power of the gospel does not end when one is justified and forgiven. He does not leave you unchanged. He does not leave you gripped by the power of sin. He delivers you from that power. Which is a process, beloved, that begins at salvation and does not end until you see him face to face. So, beloved, he not only drags us out of the darkness and into the light, he actually permeates through those that are his that very light. The light of the world. Matthew 5, 14, Jesus said, you, my people, are what? The light of the world. Paul said it like this in Ephesians 5. At one time you were darkness, But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So the imperative is to walk as those whose children you are. You're adopted into the family of God, he says. God is light. We are therefore children of light. That means God's very name is upon you, you see, because his name is our salvation. The children of God. Which means that God actually chooses to identify with you. His bride, he has chosen to identify with sinners that he came to save. And he saves them and by saving them, transforms them into the very image of his son. The one who is the way. The one who is the what? Truth. The one who is the life. Now, for those of you who have children, they bear your name. Amen? And anyone hopes as a parent, and you pray to God that by their lives, as they mature, that they will honor that name. Right? Whether you're a Boudreaux, whether you're a Schroeder, whether you're a leader, a smith, whatever you are, as your children grow and they go out, you hope and you pray that they'll honor the family name. And even more important than that is that they have the name of God upon them. Baptized into Christ Jesus. Romans 6. And and thus baptized into his death, walking in the newness of life. And that newness of life provides a certain detectability to the world that we're different. Something's different. And one of the ways, beloved, in which God's people are detectable in the world is that their word is their vow. 
That is that their words are true and therefore need not, they need not to utter some formulated kind of oath in order to validate what they say is being true. As Jesus ministers this word, we read now his application of the principles in verses 33 to 37. And I want you to notice first that there is a truth that had been perverted. Truth perverted. Now, during the time of first century Judaism, Jesus comes out and he says, again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. At this time, truth in this culture was no longer the expectation. People actually expected to be lied to. So making some kind of a rash vow had become the norm of the day. Jesus goes on to say, look, let what you say be simply yes or no, because anything more than this, it comes from evil. Now, before we move on, does this mean, as some Christians have misinterpreted this, that if we're handed a court-ordered subpoena, that we should refuse to take an oath as a Christian? Does this mean that if we're elected to public office, that if we join the military service, that we are not to raise our right hand and that we should refuse to put our hand on the Bible and swear an oath? No, that is not what that means. This is not a universal prohibition against taking oaths in any and all situations. Okay, so let's make that clear before we move on. Very important. After all, in Hebrews 6, verse 14... God is described as confirming a promise with an oath. God himself. In Matthew 26, when Jesus stood there before the high priest, the high priest said, I put you under oath by the living God. Isn't that interesting? A sinful religious hypocrite is putting under oath the living God in the name of the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, it is as you said. Under oath, if you will. Over 50 times in the Gospels, Jesus says, truly I say to you. 25 times in the Gospels, he says, truly, truly I say to you. Now, that is not because of some lack of integrity with the character of Jesus of Nazareth. It's not that he lacked some kinds of trustworthiness when he has said, truly I say, or truly, truly I say, but out of love towards his listeners, he said, look, take special heed to what I am about to say. So again, this does not mean we cannot take vows in the court system or whatnot. The point is that you should not be in a position or God's people should not lack the character where you have to offer some type of an oath in order to be taken seriously. That's all this really means at the end of the day. This has to do with the intention of the Christian heart, not the requirement of the government. If the government, beloved, requires you to take an oath, take the oath. But even so, as the redeemed child of God, made right with God, as a kingdom citizen... An oath should not have to be taken in order for us to speak truthfully. In other words, we shouldn't have to say, I swear to God. I swear that what I'm, I swear that this is true. I know typically what I say isn't true, but this time I swear. 
Because you see, in the days before legal contracts, in the days before legal ease as we know them, uh, you know the kind of language uh, that has this excessive amount of legal jargon. It's uh, such as the fine points of the products you buy. You read, you know, you, you need glasses more magnified than my reading glasses in order to read some of these things. Long before there were commercials that ended with product disclaimers, right? The guy that talks at the speed of light at the end of the commercial. Use of this drug may cause temporary blindness, suicidal thoughts, intention, internal bleeding. Ask your doctor if it's right for you. That's legal ease. Before what we know as legal ease, in the day of Jesus, there was a type of legal ease that played a role in day-to-day life with business, economy, and commerce, and it was known as oaths or vows. That's what Jesus is addressing. One of the ways of guaranteeing service or obligation in order to participate in a particular enterprise was to exchange an oath. And the habit was to take an oath or a vow against some kind of sacred object where you would actually like place yourself under the judgment of God, so to speak, if, if it didn't come to pass. Like, I swear, if I don't do this or follow through on this, may lightning strike me from the sky. That type of thing. So this kind of behavior, this kind of verbiage was everywhere in Jesus' day. From the marketplace and business to family to neighbor relations, I swear on my firstborn son's head that this time I'll, rep- I'll return the plaques owl plow, the ox plow, by sundown or whatever. I borrowed this tool. I promised this time on my firstborn born son's head. It'll be back to you. So Jesus is getting here. He's getting at something that is much more than just mere lying, but he's revealing something much deeper, which we'll look at in a moment. He's exposing something that was inconsistent with God's people and how they live and how they spoke. Again, he said, you have heard that it was said to those old. So Jesus is again exposing what the people had been taught was something traditional and not biblical. Very dangerous when something becomes traditional that's not biblical. Notice, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Is there anything wrong with that statement, biblically? Not at all. There's nothing wrong with that statement. It's perfectly fine. It is biblical. As a matter of fact, it is a combination or conglomeration of various statements about truth-telling in the presence of Almighty God. It talks about the seriousness of taking vows and then breaking them. It's not a prohibition against them. For instance, if you go back to the Old Testament, one of the things that Jesus um, is basically citing here or that the religious leaders in this day were um, reciting was a combination these three texts. Number one was Leviticus 19.12. You shall not swear by the name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Numbers 30, verse 2. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Deuteronomy 23, verse 21. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. 
So overall, beloved, Jesus is addressing here the third commandment, and that is not to take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, he applies the truth of that word to our personal situation, our speech, our relationships with one another. So he's not merely talking about taking God's name in vain um, like in swearing. People use Christ's name in vain or say, you know, oh my God or whatever. Although that's included. He's talking about a life. Not only with using particular words, but also the use of our bodies, our mind, and our soul. This is what Jesus is getting at here as he addresses the people of his day. Had much more to do than just surface lying. Now, the Pharisees, once again, had restricted the scope of God's commandment. Remember the passage they used on adultery in a certificate of divorce? Nothing wrong with that statement. It was biblical, but they had taken it and they had turned it and twisted it for their own personal benefit. And it became to mean something it never meant to mean in the first place. So once again, this is a matter. It was a matter of the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. Jesus is pointing out the spirit of the law. They leaned on the letter of the law and manipulated it to mean whatever they want. So he contrasts their teaching, you have heard that it was said, with, but I say. So Jesus is declaring two things here, beloved. Number one, that we do not use words in order to, to dodge responsibility or to dodge promises. And second, is that he calls his people to be so truthful that vows aren't necessary. It's very simple. So again, this is not some new law. This is not some new work of righteousness, but rather is simply a sober reflection of God's people who are indwelt by the truth, who have been transformed by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, who are forgiven people, who are a cleansed people, who are one with God, just as Jesus is one with the Father. Those who truly follow me, the way, the truth, and the life, truth itself, Jesus said, should characterize both who we are and whose we are. We expect truth from one another. We expect to hear the truth. You expect me to speak the truth. We have, expect to have truthful relationships with one another. And you know, Christians are also the people who can handle the truth. When you hear that you're a wretched sinner, what do you say to that? Amen. Amen. <laughs> nevertheless, are saved by grace. And we say, amen. We're not offended when we hear, you can't save yourself. You're not good enough in yourself. You are a wretch in yourself. You deserve hell. But God. It takes God, and it takes solely God, and his work on your behalf to save you. We're not offended by that. That's the truth. We're not offended by truth. We're not destroyed when we see the residue from the tide of our own faults, from the tide of our own sinful shortcomings, even blatant sins. At the end of the day, because of grace and the spirit who bears witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God, we rest in his grace. We throw ourselves upon the mercy of God. We're not offended by the truth. We've been graced to handle the truth about life, about death, about sin, about forgiveness, and here about righteous living. There's no need for our yes to be declared by swearing on the Bible. 
or by the temple or even on my own head or your own head. Jesus is addressing a people who are making all kinds of oaths who had a book of oral law in this day, actually. Right? The Mishnah, the, 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 the oral law. And it, it, it gave you instructions on what you could and couldn't swear by, actually. For instance, you could swear an oath by Jerusalem from the West, and if you swore from the West, your promise would be binding. If you swore from the East, your promise wasn't binding. I mean, ridiculous things like that. Here again, by mishandling and abusing the word of God, they developed, you see, a religious structure that allowed them to beat the system. This is what he's pointing out. Religious leaders figured a way to actually make a vow without being bound to the vow. And in turn, they were swearing on on all kinds of places, all kinds of positions, and all kinds of body parts. Notice verse 34. But I say to you, Jesus says, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king, and do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. I know we can color our hair, but at the end of the day, The real color is underneath, and God in his providence changes the color of our hair. That's the point. He is in sovereign control of all things. So they would say, I swear by heaven, refuse to fulfill their obligation, and say, hey, I never swore on God's name. I swore on the temple. I never swore on God's name. I swore on the altar. I swore on my son's head. So they continued to find ways to disobey God without breaking the legal ease of the day. There's five children in my family. I was the oldest, uh, the first of five. And four of us were fairly close in age. And I was a little liar. I was born a little liar. The Bible says we're all born liars. And that manifestation of God's truth was made visible to my siblings. And when we would lie to one another, we had our own kind of legal ease. And uh, one day my dad left. He says, I'm going out to coffee with your mother. Johnny, when I get back, I want to see the, make sure the dishes are done. You got it, Dad. So I went to my sisters and said, Dad said do the dishes. <laughs> and they said, are you telling the truth? King's X, cross my heart, hope to die. So when you say that, it's like, look, it's not just my lips that are speaking this. This is, this is from my heart. <laughs> we would still lie. But there was one phrase we had. Do you swear on the Bible? I never lied when I sweared on the Bible, when I swore on the Bible, and I don't think my brothers and sisters did either, but that was like our, our getcha phrase. And if we were lying, and when one of us would hold one another accountable with, you swear on the Bible, sometimes we'd leave the room and not answer. (laughs) But see, that's very childish, is it not? That's childish. That's unbiblical. And that's the, Jesus is destroying this kind of childish, childish methodology that was rampant in his day. This is what they were doing. But he says here, look, 
God is behind every single thing you swear because he's sovereign over every aspect of heaven above and earth below. He's sovereign over the temple you're swearing on. He's sovereign over the altar you're swearing on. And he's sovereign over the color of your hair that you're swearing on. Everything's under the providence of God. So there's nothing that you can say such as I you know, swear on my mother's grave that is any less binding than I swear than, than is I swear on the name of the living God or on the Bible or whatever. Jesus says every word is spoken, every word that is spoken, every word that ever has been spoken, every promise that's ever been made or broken has been made or broken under God, who is the sovereign, omnipotent ruler of all things. Every promise is a vow before the Lord, even when <clears throat> it's a vow to a person, to one another. So the Pharisees' thinking and teaching on this in this day was so far out of hand that Jesus not only addressed it indirectly here on the Sermon on the Mount, he also addressed it directly right in their face. And you can see that if you turn to Matthew 23. And we pick it up in verse 16. Woe to you blind guides who say if anyone swears by the temple it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that is made the gold sacred? And you say if anyone swears by the altar it's nothing, but if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Notice, you blind guides, you blind fools, you blind men, you're the ones who've corrupted the culture by twisting my truth. <laughs> what an indictment. teaching others that so long as you cross your fingers behind your back, your oaths are not binding? That's what it is. They abused this practice that had no meaning and no authority whatsoever. A person's word meant nothing, so swearing all these silly oaths became the norm of the day. So there you have truth perverted. Notice our last point, truth pronounced. He simply says, let your yes be what? Yes, and let your no be no. Anything more than this is of evil. Cut and dry. God says, Jesus says here, God desires truth in all your words. So Jesus' confrontation of these, of these rash vows gets to the heart of what he means to be a person of godly integrity before the world. A person who lives what they believe doesn't depend on oaths to get by. They don't have to swear on the Bible. James 5.12 expounds on this very truth in the Sermon on the Mount. It says, but above all my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. And that's, that's not eternal condemnation, that's... That has to do more with um, 
your responsibilities on any given day. Chastening and that type of thing. The Christian, bottom line, is expected to be a person whose word can be trusted, and that's what Jesus is addressing here on the Sermon on the Mount. And the point is that the Christian's word, his life example, ought to be enough that he's viewed as a trustworthy person. This is what David meant, beloved. In Psalm 51, he says, God, you desire truth where? In the inward parts. And, and, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David points out that it's a form of inward being that flows out of the person. We're Christians. We're followers of Christ. The word Christian means little Christ. And when we speak, we speak as a representative of the living God. When we speak, Christ's reputation, it's on the line. When we're untruthful in speech, we bring about dishonor to the name of Christ. And therefore, God's people take his name in vain. Now, this is something very noticeable. This is something very powerful. That is the Christian life to the world that is watching. You see, our coworkers, you know what they recognize? They recognize the Christians who have integrity compared to those who don't. Because, you know, anybody can profess this glorious name of Christ, but our coworkers or customers, if you're an uh, employer or you have your own business, whether you realize it or not, they're comparing who you believe in with what you do and what you say. They do not care whatsoever about how well you understand the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. They do not care how well you can communicate the immutability of Jesus Christ. They do not care how well you can distinguish between sanctification and justification. Godly integrity to them provides a platform for us to share the glories of Christ. Anything more than yes or no comes from where? It comes from evil, which means point blank. Anything more than this, it's sin. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. God desires truth in the inward parts. In other words, our lives should be lived without a disclaimer, like the commercial guy. We don't have to say something and say, this only applies if, blah, 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 blah. Why is this? Quite simply, beloved, because Jesus, who is the truth, said, I came to bear witness of the what? Of the truth. Sanctify them, my bride. Sanctify them, my people, in your truth. Your word, Father, is truth. The very embodiment of truth stood before Pontius Pilate. My kingdom is not from the world, Jesus said. Pilate said to him, Pilate said to him, so you're a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness of the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate responds with this, what is truth? Beloved, you have been graced to know truth. You've been saved by the truth. You're sustained by the truth. You'll be glorified because of the truth. You are in the truthful one, Jesus Christ. Truth was staring Pilate in the face, and yet he had not the eyes to see. 
Truth was speaking to Pilate, and he had not the ears to hear. And as a saved sinner, you've been granted the ability to both hear and see the truthful one and embrace this truth, and that is God in Christ Jesus. So if we live as a people who break vows, if we break commitments, if we break obligations, deadlines, work requirements, right? I mean, beloved, our employers expect how many hours of work a day? At least eight. That's what they expect. That's what we're called to give them. Not work plus slackness, not work plus sleeping, not work plus Bible reading. Lunch is fine, break is fine. Not reading our Bible when we're supposed to be working. Christians are not people trying to lower the standard to beat the curve like the Pharisees were. They're dependable, they're responsible because of the truth that is in us. Because the aim of all things is this for the Christian. The aim of all things is that Jesus Christ be made known. The one who's the way, the truth, and the life. And he therefore calls us to live and to speak in such a way that makes that glory known. And we can't do it if there's a disclaimer that follows our name or our life. Amen? So may our lives, by the power of the Holy Spirit, may, it be, may they be lived before a lost, dark, and dying world from which we've been delivered. May we live in such a way that our integrity, that our words, and our very lives give the world reason to wonder and scratch their head as to why, what is it about this hope that you have within you? Because we're the children of light. We are light in the Lord. The scripture says the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Why? I close with this. 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their what? Yes, in Jesus. That is why it is through him, the scripture says, that we utter our amen to God for his glory, who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a what? A glorious, eternal guarantee. This is who you are because of whose you are. A redeemed people by the one who is the way, he's life, and he's truth. You, therefore, are people of truth. We are his beacon of truth in a dark and dying world. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you greatly for your holy scriptures. We thank you for the word of life. We couldn't live without your truth. We are an ever need, needy, needy people. Your word affirms us in the faith. Your word gives us promises to live by. Encourages our heart to love and pursue holiness. It leads us to repentance when we sin. It causes us to long for heaven 
for which we desperately desire and can taste. As we live in this world, we're still plagued by sin, Father. Failure, weakness, and we confess that we often stumble and fall. The sins of our tongue are apparent to all of us. We can't even list them. They're countless. We understand that we desperately need your forgiveness, your sustaining grace, and we ask that you give us a deeper hunger for that righteousness. We ask, Lord, that by grace, as we cast ourselves upon the mercies of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that you would make us holy in speech, that you would revolutionize our lives so that our lives might have an influence and a validity by the power of your Spirit so that it might transform those around us who are watching, who are watching, who are listening. Because we're the closest thing they know to the Word of God. We pray that they might believe. That the world would believe that you sent your son. Sanctify us in the truth, we pray. For your word is true. Praise you for the grace that has saved us and sustains us. We thank you for the table. As we come to see the gospel made visible. By way of the broken body and the shed blood of your son who laid down his life for many. We thank you in Jesus' name.